Let's uh, open up to Matthew 27. We're going to look at verses 1 through 10. And before we look at Matthew 27, um, I just want to talk a little bit about mysteries and puzzles and problems. I, there's things in this world that sometimes are confusing and they're hard to understand. Actually, the writer of the book of Proverbs in chapter 30, verse 18, said there's four things that make him curious or are very mysterious and difficult for him. One of them is an eagle in the sky, he says. Just watching an eagle in the sky, is, it's awesome, but also it's mysterious how God can put such power into a bird that can plummet with sharp talons, grab a fish, and head straight up to a mountain again. It's, the writer Proverbs says it's amazing. Second thing he says is a snake on a rock. I don't know about you, but I hate snakes. I hate them. And how they slither on rock scares me. I don't understand it, how they move like that. I'm with the writer of Proverbs on that. Third thing he writes about is a ship on a high sea. If you've ever been on a ship in the middle of a storm, there is nothing to me more gripping than being on a ship. One minute you're on top of this wave that's cresting maybe 30, 40 feet. And all of a sudden the bow of the boat goes down into a swell where all the water is above you. And can I survive? And somehow a boat just keeps bobbing up and down. And the way on the ship on the high seas, is, it's a mystery. It's hard to understand. The fourth illustration he gives is the way a man is with a young woman. And I, I think this is the strangest mystery of all. What a woman can do to a man in love is unbelievable. You cannot tell me a guy would dance in the woods by himself if it weren't for love. <laughs> Women can get you to do anything. It's crazy. So the writer of the Proverbs says these are four mysteries that he just doesn't understand. And uh, along with these four things, I would like to offer one more that personally I do not understand. It's a mystery. And every time I try to map, uh, wrap my mind around this puzzle, I am baffled. And the mystery to me is this. How could Judas betray the Son of God? I don't understand it. Why would he, being one of the 12 disciples, betray Jesus? And for that matter, why would anybody who ever met Jesus, learned about Jesus, sang songs to Jesus, all of a sudden, just quit? Just want him out of their lives. Why do people still reject Jesus, knowing how good and wonderful and kind and excellent and wise and giving and patient he has been with all of us, every single one of us. And what really frustrates me the most is why, why do some people who you have worshipped with for years and years, sang songs next to him at church, shared many difficult trials with, victories, defeats, but grace has been with you all along the way, and all of a sudden they just leave. They quit the church, and they leave Jesus altogether. I don't understand it. I'll be honest with you. I have been, I've been a pastor in this area since 1996, and I cannot tell you how many pastors just quit the ministry and never want to have anything to do with Jesus again. I don't get it. It's shocking. 
It's shocking. You know what shocks me? I don't understand how a pastor who can read the Word of God one day all of a sudden can just take a whole new bent on the, like even the LGBTQ stuff, all of a sudden in a drop of a hat. What in the world? It's crazy to me. And it all goes back to the same heart as Judas. Why would Judas betray Jesus? We're going to read about it, and uh, we're going to solve this riddle. So the title, the title is Betrayal, Understanding the Riddle of Judas, starting in verse 1 of Matthew 27. It begins by saying, Early in the morning, all of the chief priests and the elders of the people came to the decision to put Jesus to death. So we are moments away from the trial. Well, we actually had the trial to some degree. Will talked all about that last week. But this is it. This is the dark moment. This is Black Friday. Jesus is being led like a lamb to the slaughter. Verse 2. They bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse. And he returned the 30 silver coins to the chief priests and the elders. And he said, I've sinned, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us, they replied. That's your responsibility. That's on you, is what they're saying. Verse 5. So Judas threw the money into the temple, and he left. Then he went away, and he hanged himself. The chief priest picked up the coins and said, Oh, it's against the law to put this into the treasury. Oh, how noble they are. They buy the guy off, give him 30 pieces of silver. They give it back. They say, oh, we can't use this money. Blood money. Like they're so noble. Verse 7, so they decided to use the money to buy the potter's field as a burial place for foreigners. That is why it has been called the field of blood to this day. Then what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. They took the 30 silver coins, the price set on him by the people of Israel, and they used them to buy the potter's field as the Lord commanded me. So this is what we're going to study. And more than anything, this is going to be a study of a person and why he did what he did. And it's the study of Judas. And there's a lot of confusion about Judas. There's a lot of confusion. Because many people aren't sure where he actually stands before God. From all outward signs, like if we are to evaluate Judas, based on the way we evaluate other people, he had all the criteria for us to say, man, he's in. He's one of the followers. In fact, he was on the inside. He's one of the 12. So for three and a half years, Judas had firsthand knowledge and he had an intimate walk with Jesus for three and a half years. Imagine, he traveled daily with Jesus. He saw Jesus' face. Could you imagine beholding the face of Jesus? I'd give anything to see Jesus' face. Anything. He heard his voice. He probably got to hear Jesus sing as they went to the garden. 
because they sang hymns. And could you imagine hearing the voice of Jesus, the one who created the vocal cords? It must have been incredible. He heard his voice. He probably slept in a tent with them on some of their journeys. It's nothing like being in a tent with somebody and you can't go to sleep and you just kind of talk about things. I'll bet you he got to hear some of that. People probably asking Jesus questions all night long and just hearing his answers. He was there. He was able to watch Jesus defeat the Pharisees in argument in the temple, just humiliate them. He got the secret insights to all the parables that only disciples were privy to. And he was in the upper room. And he shared bread at the Last Supper. And during all of this time, during all of this time, not once did the other disciples suspect him of betrayal, of being a turncoat. In fact, in the book of Acts, chapter 1, verse 17, Peter says, Judas was one of us, and he shared in the ministry with us. Don't you think Peter would have been able to smell a rat? And he didn't. Judas was one of us. So this first criteria really troubles me, to be honest with you. I mean, if we're to be honest about this. Because as I look around the room, as I look in the pews, I naturally assume Because you have given up a Sunday morning and you're sitting here with us, you probably are one of God's elect. I mean, who else would give up a Sunday and come? So we naturally assume we're all in. But are we? Am I? Because Judas was in there. Second thing about Judas is he was a witness to the power of God. Like he got to see... The miracles. He got to, with his own eyes, see a blind man see, a lame man walk, a leper cleanse, a withered hand completely restored. He got to taste water that was turned to wine. He saw Jesus feed the multitudes two times. He was in the boat when Jesus calmed the storm and it was raging and Jesus said, quiet, and it went, He was there. And not only that, he was part of the mission. Do you remember when Jesus sent the disciples out two by two? And he said, go two by two, and even the demons will be obedient to your command. So I'm sure Judas probably commands some demons to leave people, and he saw it happen. We, it's funny, in our culture, I think there's in the back of people's mind, if I can just see a miracle, then I'd believe. Really? If our church just saw a blind man see, everybody would believe. I'm not so sure about that. Judas got to see the whole thing. John even says there were so many miracles Jesus did that there's not enough libraries to contain everything. And Judas was there. Third thing about Judas is what we just read is he confessed his sin. He said, I have sinned. And doesn't First John say, if a man confesses his sin, God is faithful and just and will forgive his sin? So what gives? Is Judas in or not? Because he has all the criteria to say he's in. And I'll ask it like this. Is Judas saved? And I'm using it in the present tense because what happens to us sometimes is we, we view Bible characters as something that was either like just a story or past tense. 
Right now, Judas is somewhere. Right now. Where is he? Is he in heaven? Or is he eternally condemned? It all depends on whether or not he was a true believer, and to cut to the quick, the answer is no, by the words of Jesus. Jesus says this about him. Woe to that man, and he's talking about Judas, by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. So the word woe means cursed on that man. And then he says it would have been better if he had not been born. What does that mean? What that means, simply put, is what Judas is experiencing right now in his body. What he's experiencing it would have been so much better if he never existed in the first place. And then Jesus, in the book of John chapter 17, calls him the son of perdition, which is damnation. He once called him the devil. And Peter quotes Acts 1.20 and says, let his place be left utterly desolate, which means don't let Judas have any honor, reward, and cut off from the blessing of God forever. So from these verses, it is clear, it is clear that Judas is not saved. He's lost right now. But you could say he had everything, everything you'd look for from a true believer while he was alive. So then what was the problem? What caused him, to, apparently having everything, to having nothing? He was, he had one problem. And we find it in the book of Acts chapter 1. And I want you to look there. And the reason why is this should weigh heavy on us all. Because, man, I don't want to be cut off from all, for all eternity. And so Acts chapter 1, I want to start in verse 15. This is the beginning of the early church. Jesus just died rose again, ascended into heaven, and now all of these people are gathering in the upper room, about 120, to start the new church. But they need to replace Judas because Judas hung himself. They need another leader. So Peter stands up in verse 15, and he says, uh, in those days Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120. And he said, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through the mouth of David concerning Judas, who served as guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in our ministry. So that's where that comes from. Verse 18, with the reward he got for his wickedness, Judas bought a field. There he fell headlong, his body burst open, and all his intestines spilled out. So the way that you, you use this with what we read in Matthew is the idea is that he bought, basically went out, took a noose, tied it on a branch, hung himself. Apparently that branch probably snapped, fell to the ground, cut open his stomach, his intestines fell out. A terrible death. That's how he died. Keep reading. Verse 19. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called that field in their language, Akeldama, which is field of blood. For said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place, meaning Judas, be deserted, 
Let there be no one to dwell in it. And may another take his place of leadership. So Peter's sharing scriptural insight that he received from the Holy Spirit about Judas, and he, taught, he reveals what his problem is in verse 18. He said he's wicked. He's full of wickedness. His wickedness caused him to do these things. So you could say internally he was wicked. He was broken on the inside. The word wicked is a very severe word, and yet it is a word that is true of all unregenerate people. That word regenerate, unregenerate means it's a person's condition before Jesus enters their life through the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit enters our life, he starts regenerating us, making us new. We're born again. But before I accept Jesus... I'm in an unregenerate, I'm in a broken, wicked state. Because the Holy Spirit is not yet working on a person. It is what the heart of the natural person is like without Jesus. But identifying wickedness is difficult. It's very tricky, and here's the real reason why. In real time, wickedness and wicked people know how to look righteous. They um, know how to look good. And that should scare us all. Because remember, Peter said, Judas was one of us. And he was with us in the ministry. As if he didn't catch it. So to define wickedness, it's just a real quick definition. A wicked heart, if you boil it all down, there's a lot of different definitions for the Greek word that comes out of wickedness. But if you boil it all down, a wicked person has a heart that is un tamed, like a wild horse who hasn't yet been broken. It is untamed. It's a heart that just wants to be free and does not want to submit, doesn't want to submit to any authority, does not want to submit to any rule, law, and most of all, does not want to submit to God. That's a wicked heart. Don't tell me what to do because I'm free and it's my right to be free and biblically speaking, do you know that doesn't mean anything? Like, we use that word free kind of nonchalantly. I want to be free. But did you know the Bible says when you are born, you are born as a slave to somebody? But the problem with the wicked heart is they are not a slave to God, so they're a slave to someone else. And as a slave to someone else... They do not feel compelled to obey God, nor his law, nor the way he created the world. They believe they're free, and they believe God and his design is restrictive and limited. God has no right to define what marriage is. God has no right to define what a baby in a womb is. God has no right to define what my biology is. God has no right to tell me what to do. In fact, this is old history. That's what the wicked heart does not want to be tamed. It's wild. Yeah, but there's consequences if you ignore God. I know that, but the wicked heart doesn't care. Because in the back of the wicked heart's mind is, I'll get away with it. I'll get away with it. Psalm 10, 6 to 11, describes the wicked heart by saying, they think nothing bad will ever happen to us. 
will be free of trouble forever. And it goes on in verse 11. God isn't watching. He has closed his eyes and he won't even see what we do. So the idea is a wicked heart really sees God as this old man who takes naps up in heaven all the time. And you can get away with it. Because he's, he's not that smart. This was the heart of Judas. And this is the heart of everyone who does not have Christ. They don't submit to God's law. So what happens is, if you're wicked, the way you see things is twisted up. Your paradigm is different. It's, it's, there's a word we use for it. It's basically perverted. Perverted means it twists meaning. And the first perversion is it says a wicked person's at enmity with God. That means they're emotionally restricted. They're antagonistic. They don't like God. So how do I know I'm wicked? Well, there is in me this... There's in me this antagonism and mistrust of God. I just don't trust him. He's the bad guy. And you know why he's the bad guy? Because he's not letting me have what I think I deserve. He's re too restrictive. You remember in the garden? Why does he have, make such a big deal about Adam eating the fruit? Because he wanted to hold something back. So in the mind of a wicked person, they believe God is always holding stuff back. Jonathan Edwards says the unregenerate heart is kind of like a guy who's fighting a king and the king defeats him, kills his troops, kills his family, and then the king says, bow to me. Even though the guy can bow physically, his heart says, I'm not going to bow to nobody. That's a wicked heart. Which leads to the second part. Since God is not for me, I better be for myself because nobody else is. I better look out for myself. And so a wicked person sees every situation and asks the question, how does this benefit me? What can I get out of it? And what do I got to do to control it? So you take a look at Judas. He seemed committed. He was one of the 12. But we get inside information about him in John. He held the money purse so he could steal from it. it says he was a thief. And then in Matthew chapter 26, he turns and decides to betray Jesus immediately after Jesus gathers the disciples and he says, I'm heading to Jerusalem where I'm going to die. And then immediately, Judas hands over Jesus to the Pharisees. How come he didn't hand Jesus over after the hosannas were sung? And everybody's throwing their cloaks on the ground and palm trees. Because as long as I'm with Jesus, it's great, but he wants to die, I'm off, I'm out. Pharisees, you can have them. That's the heart of a wicked person. A wicked person will say this, I'll stick with Jesus, I'll stick with Jesus, as long as I get some kind of benefit in return. But once he asks me to do something, I'm out. And then as I thought about that statement, I mean, if you really think about that statement a second, I'll stick with him as long as it benefits me. I then realized, so like when I study, I try to ask the Holy Spirit, as I meditate, how does this apply? 
I then realized that the average American church in 2022 would make Judas feel right at home. I mean, why not be a follower of Jesus in today's church? It's easy. It's a great deal. Most churches I know don't ask much, especially the bigger they are and the more programs they offer and the more excellent the music they play, the less they ask from disciples. We'll take care of you and we'll give you a good show. It'd be great. People expect the church and God to serve the needs of the individual, but the moment you start asking people in the congregation to change, to obey, to believe what God says, they leave. They leave. It's a great deal. <laughs> it's a great deal. Come as you are, cry some, sing some songs you like, and then if you don't like it, there's other churches to go to. That's American Christianity, the religion of me. And Judas would fit in great. But here's what happens to the wicked heart. After a while, you can only suppress it for so long. Eventually, wickedness can't be hidden. It starts bubbling up. And I would say the way it bubbles up is by how you respond to your sin. Let me explain. Everybody sins. All of us sin. First John says, if you claim to be without sin, you're a liar. So, so we all sin. That's true. The righteous man will sin and the wicked man will sin. But it's the issue of how you respond to your sin. The righteous man is broken and they repent. The wicked man is stubborn. They're stubborn. That's what we find in Judas. It took a little bit of time for Judas to realize what he did was wicked. He, it should have broke his heart the moment he made a deal with the Pharisee. It should have destroyed him the moment he kissed Jesus. That should have killed him. No, when did it destroy him? When he realized, oh, this is really not turning out good and Jesus is going to be killed. Oh, man, then he's cut to the heart with this poison of guilt. And all he has is regret. I got caught. His betrayal came crashing down and all that was left was regret. I sinned. I was wrong. And he noticed, he keeps saying, I did a very bad thing. He's not broken that. I missed you. And then the Pharisees are like, that's your problem, buddy. <laughs> Sucker. So I would say the moment he's broken by guilt, Judas was tottering, what I would say, on the edge of damnation or salvation. That's where people totter. Not, not when they sin, but how they respond to their sin. When you are caught in the trap of your sin, the vital question is, what do you do? A righteous man repents and pleads forgiveness from a merciful God. They give up. They quit. They say, God, take my life. What do you want? I'll change. A uh, wicked man refuses to let go of his pride and his control, and he would rather be killed than be humiliated by God and rest on his mercy. In this story, Judas hung himself. 
he was not willing to be broken. He wouldn't submit. So he kept things in his control, took his life in his own hands, and killed himself. I won't say much. I was going to talk about suicide, but I don't want to talk about that. I just want to talk about sorrow. But have you ever thought about suicide like that? I just don't want to give up control. I'm still in control. I don't trust God enough with my own life. 2 Corinthians 7 is a very interesting passage. And it talks about the difference between the righteous heart and the wicked heart when they're caught in sin. It talks about this two kinds of sorrows. There's a righteous sorrow and there's a wicked sorrow. If you could turn to 2 Corinthians 7, it's, um, it's fascinating to me. And it will kind of identify the difference between repentance and regret. Repentance is what a righteous person does. Like Judas, regret is all that's left for the wicked person. So if we could go to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, I'm going to read verses 10 and 11. To just give you a quick background on this verse, 1 Corinthians, the church had a problem. A man was sleeping with his father's wife. So his father must have got remarried. And uh, the, his son had an affair with his father's wife. And Paul said, you guys are, you cannot be okay with this. This is wrong. And you're just kind of letting it go. So you need to confront this guy. And if he doesn't change, throw him out of the church. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Apparently he wrote a letter that was scathing to them. And it made him sorrowful. The, the church and the man, the man repented, was restored, but the church also stood up and said, we're not going to tolerate this. And they were really broken about it. And Paul didn't want to write the letter because it would make him out as the bad guy and mean. And It's funny, when you confront people on their sin, you're always the bad guy. Have you ever noticed that? But Paul realized they're like, no, we were wrong. And so he's really excited about it. So look at verse 10. Look at verse 10 of 2 Corinthians 7. He says, well, let's start in 9 because that will kind of give you the background. He said, yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. And here it is, verse 10. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. No regret, because you're dealing with it. And then he says, however, worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you? What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves? What indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done? At every point, you've proved yourself to be innocent in this matter. So here's what he's saying. He's saying there's different kind of fruit based on the heart. A righteous heart, one that is redeemed, will respond to sin like this. Repent. And under repentance, you can tell it's repentance because there's fruit of repentance. There's earnestness. Earnestness means I get serious and I want to deal with this. And I'm sensitive and I can't keep it going. I need to deal with it. Then you have eagerness. Eagerness is about wanting to be clean now. It's immediacy. 
You want to be, you're, you're willing to be transparent. You're willing to say, hey, I've got nothing to hide. I just want to be clean. I'm sick of this sin. I feel like garbage and I want to be clean. I'm sick of this addiction. It's killing me. I'm eager to be made new. And then there's indignation. That is an anger at the sin. Why do I do this? I'm not going to do it anymore. I get visibly angry at myself and even others that are trying to legitimize this. No, it's not right. And then you have alarm. And alarm is interesting. It's a concern that I might be too late. I better, now's the chance. It's kind of like what it says in Hebrews, if today you hear his voice, harden not your heart. Like it's growing hard. If I don't deal with it now, it's going gonna, it's gonna to grow hard. And then you have yearning. Yearning is renewed affection towards God. I want my relationship restored. I want it back. And it's a yearning to have your relationship restored with people in the church. I'm tired of the conflicts. I want to just make things right and have unity. And then there's this zeal. I'll do whatever it takes. It's I, I am determined. I will jump over any barrier to receive God's forgiveness and your forgiveness. I want to make it right. And then the final thing is resolve. What I need to do, I will do. Tell me what I need to do and I'll do it. I'm willing to see justice done. What is the just thing? It's kind of like Zacchaeus, that wee little man climbed up into a sycamore tree. The Lord came to town that day, went to Zacchaeus' house. Zacchaeus was a bad tax collector. Jesus confronted him on his sins, and he asked for forgiveness. And then Zacchaeus said, I will pay back ninefold whatever I stole. He was willing to see justice done. He was resolved. The way you can tell your heart is good is it soft. However, the wicked heart has regret, like Judas. And regret is everything opposite of this. Regret is indifference. Instead of earnestness, it's indifference. Indifference is just like, why are you treating this sin so serious? What's the big deal? Just let it go, man. You're blowing it out of proportion, which comes to you just want to hide. Instead of eager to reveal, you just, just, I just, you just let it go, leave it alone. Hide it. Sweep it under the rug. And then there's this tolerance. Instead of indignation, there's tolerance. You know what? Everybody does it. Don't you think it's time we accept that values and norms have changed? Language and definitions are being changed all the time. Christians are the only ones that are bothered. Why can't you just get over it and tolerate it? And then you become passive. You guys, don't, you got all the time in the world. Don't worry about it. And then, and this is to me the clearest way you can tell you have a hard heart, is you become an independent person. I don't need God anymore. You know what? I don't even need the church. I don't care if I hurt others. I'm just kind of sick of people. I'm sick of people knowing all my business and hearing all my dirty laundry. You know, it's none of their business. It's funny when you're a church, you're part of a family, and sometimes people do things, and it's none of their business, but aren't we family? And then content. I don't want to change. You know, I kind of like the sin. 
I know other people shouldn't like to sin, but I'm kind of special. I just can't help it. I kind of like what I'm doing, so don't try to change me. And then ignore, you let the bygones be bygones. It reminds me of the story. And this is a dreadful story. And I'll try to... I'll try to not make it so dreadful. There's four football players at a college. They had a party, and they had a girl over. They got the girl drunk, and you probably know what happened. She passed out on the floor. The police heard about it, and they did some terrible things with this girl. They walk in the, the apartment, and two of the football players are at the kitchen table eating Lucky Charms, reading the back of the box while this girl's just destroyed. They didn't care. They had no shame. That is where our country is at. No shame. We don't even know how to blush. It's because there's a wicked heart that's just indifferent. Judas was more upset about himself than he was for Jesus. So the question then is what was he missing? If he was part of the group, saw everything, heard the, heard the sermons, had it all, what was he missing? He was missing one thing. He was missing one thing, and it's in Hebrews 4.2. He was missing faith. They heard it. Those who had a hard heart heard things, but they didn't combine it with faith. Did you know even the demons believe, but they tremble? Why? Because faith, faith is an interesting thing. Faith has this delight in the person of God and his word. That when God tells me something, I want that thing. That's what faith has. The demons didn't want that thing, even though they knew it. And so 1 Thessalonians 2 says, Those who treat this as the very word of God are displaying faith. It's interesting. So when you say, I when a person confesses their sin, that means I agree with what God is saying about my sin and, and I agree with how God feels about my sin. And I start seeing the world the way he does. Confession isn't just saying, yeah, he's right, whatever, he's right. Okay, he's right. Okay, so what? Get over it. No, confession is saying he's right. I'm wrong. What was Judas missing? A faith that loves God first. As I was reading this um, and meditating on this, a strange memory came back to me. So, and I'm sharing this because it's really strange, and I'll just kind of give you a little bit of insight of how I grew up. How many of you have ever heard of the play Jesus Christ Superstar? Raise your hand if you've ever heard of it. Okay, put your hands down. How many of you have not heard of it? Raise your hand. Okay, so there's a lot of people. So I'll tell you, Ian, what it's about. So in the 70s, there's this play on Broadway that was called Jesus Christ Superstar. And it was a rock opera, kind of like Marcus. Tommy was by The Who, right? So it's like the Tommy, and it's a rock opera. It's pretty hard-edged music, and they tried to do the passion play to rock. And they would have, you know, these songs, Jesus Christ, Superstar, you know. And I would learn these. I, my, the school I went to was a Christian school, and they taught us. We watched this play, and we had to sing these songs. So I know all the songs, and I thought it was wonderful. You know, it was really wonderful. 
And then I got saved, and I'm listening to it, and it's horrible. And the reason why it's horrible is because the play was written from the perspective of Judas. The play ends with Jesus being crucified, and it doesn't end with a resurrection. And all through this whole play, Judas is just saying stuff like, in one of his songs, his, uh, his most momentous song, it's called, Too Much Heaven Is On Their Mind. And he just says, my mind is clearer now. And all of your followers, they need to strip the myth from the man. And in a lot of these songs, they keep saying, Jesus, you're just a man. You're only a man. And all through this song, Judas is mad at Jesus because he's saying, you're lying to all your followers. Think, think you're a Messiah and just wait till the lie comes true that you're not. And then here's the last line of the song, too much heaven on their mind. He goes, listen, Jesus, to the warning I give. Please remember, I want us to live because it's getting close to the cross. And he just wants, he knows Jesus is going to die. And he didn't like this. He said, it's sad to see our chances are weakening with every hour. And then he says, all your followers are blind because there's too much heaven on their mind. And as I listen to that, that's exactly it. That sums up a wicked man's mind perfectly. They have contempt for people that have too much heaven on their mind. That is how you know you're wicked in the heart. Wicked people are consumed with this world and making a name for themselves here and getting rich here and getting ahead here and not letting anybody get in their way. Righteous people are invested where moth and rust cannot corrode. I think the problem with the church is we don't have enough heaven on our mind. That's just my perspective. So when you look at Judas, if you boil it all down, a true believer loves God over themselves. Judas loved himself more. So let me ask you, do you love him more than you love yourself? 